everyone. Welcome to Mecca Talks, your access all areas pass to the beauty, business and lifestyle experts we call our community. I'm Kate Blythe, Chief Marketing Officer here at Mecca. And I'm Zara Wong, Head of Content. In today's episode, Mecca Talks Fragrance with Mecca Fragrance expert Laura Curtis and acclaimed chef Annalise Gregory. Hi Zara, lovely to see you again. Hi. How are you doing? Good. So we're talking about fragrance today. Oh, my favourite. What what perfume do you wear? So I actually used to wear one fragrance all the time and recently I've completely thrown that out and I have like a collection which I kind of change up every day. So Santal 33 by Lolabo, obsessed with. I think the Portrait of a Lady, Frederick Marle, is um, my mum's signature scent, but I wouldn't wear it because it's quite sort of you know, grown up. Okay, I actually, that's the one I wear. But I suppose that I just, you want to have a different scent, Yeah, right? to your mum. Yeah, but so. Rihanna wears Portrait of a Lady. Ah, yeah. Rihanna? Yeah. Ah, I know. So. That's an interesting fact. So the other brands I've recently discovered, which I hadn't ever seen before or heard of before I came to Mecca. Um, so Dias and Durga, which I think is super cool. And also Another. Yeah, Another. We just launched them last year at Mecca. So they're still pretty new. Dias and Durga is a Brooklyn fragrance brand. And it just has that kind of cool vibe of being quite boutique and unique, which I love. So those are my new kind of favorite hot tips. Um, but I still love Gypsy Water by Bye Radio as well. So that is my kind of collection. And I change it up all the time between those five different fragrances. So you wear Portrait of a Lady. I love that one. But that to me is such a winter scent. And I only put it on when it's like, I want to feel like I need to like, really like feel confident and sounds really cheesy. So feel like a grown up. But why only only in winter? (laughs) It's such like a rich, you know, smoky kind of scent as well. And also I have like, it's a little bit of a fragrance wardrobe. So I also have Carnal Flower. Oh, I don't know that one. Oh, that one is so beautiful. It's like this white floral and it's really creamy and rich and it's like it was a bit of like an indie fashion industry favorite at one bit so Kate yes. I gave us a mm. history lesson last episode yeah very good I'm a little bit <laughs> intimidated by that so I think it's your <laughs> turn this time so now you can try to one-up me all right let's get into it origins of fragrance Zara are you ready for this yes fragrance that lingers on our skin our clothes our homes and whether we realize it or not our memories when it comes to sights and taste and touch information is identified first then by an emotional response however in the case of scent our emotional reaction is instant and poignant this makes fragrance one of if not the most impactful components of our beauty routines The origins of wearable fragrance date back over 4,000 years and span asia and the middle east Civilians in Cyprus were manufacturing perfume on an industrial scale. The notes they use, like myrrh, cinnamon, coriander and bergamot, still feature in many of the scents we wear today. Florals like jasmine and rose, precious woods and spices and animal scents like that of musk and ambergris were cultivated, traded and distilled by Islamic cultures who valued perfume and incense in daily life and in ceremony and celebration. It was only in the 1200s that perfume made its way to the West. The first modern perfume made of scented oils blended in alcohol was made in 1370 for Queen Elizabeth of Hungary, her original scent known throughout Europe as Hungry Water. If you're a fan of Omarovska skincare, you'll know the brand's Neroli and rose-scented facial mist draws inspiration from this scent. In the 19th century, changes happen in both taste and chemistry developments. The fragrances created then are more similar to what we know now, blending natural oils and ingredients with synthetics. 
The following century saw a boom in fragrance production by luxury designer labels and the establishment of boutiques like Diptyque, a favourite at Mecca. Since then, fragrance has become a space of creativity for artisan and rebellious types alike. Eccentric Molecule changed the game when they created a scent made from one single molecule. Indie brand Le Labo made breakthroughs into cult status territory, and Maison Margiela bought us Replica, a collection of eau de toilettes designed to recall aromas embedded deep within our memories. While our bottles are bigger and our options greater, our affinity for fragrance hasn't strayed far from its roots. Let's see what our fragrance expert has to say about it. Okay, Zara, now we've got Laura Curtis, our Mecca in-house fragrance expert on the line from WA. Hi, Laura. So you're our in-house fragrance expert. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Mecca? Absolutely. Hi, everybody. My name is Laura. I'm the fragrance education manager for Mecca. So I'm responsible for delivering and writing all of the fragrance content for our Mecca retail team. So should we start? We wanted to really pick your brains on everything fragrance because you are the expert at Mecca. So could you start with maybe telling us what are the best places to apply your perfume? Absolutely. So the best places to apply your perfume are areas of warmth. So your wrists, the crooks of your elbows, actually the backs of your knees, they're a really good place to apply your perfume. Um, And that also provides a beautiful trail as you walk through a room. Um, And actually your tummy is a really good place as well. You can spray it into your hair. Um, So natural fibres hold fragrance really well and also onto clothes, so wool fibres, coats, things like that. So why is it that we all have sort of grown up with this idea that you spray perfume onto your neck and you spray it onto your wrists and then rub your wrists together? Is that completely wrong? It is a little bit wrong, yes. Uh, So (laughs) when you're rubbing your wrists together, you're accelerating the evaporation of the scent. So it's like watching your favourite Netflix show and clicking fast forward. You get to the end more quickly, but you miss out on all the beautiful nuances of the story of the fragrance. So you really want your fragrance to evolve beautifully over time on its own so that you can experience all of the beautiful notes and the composition of the fragrance. So I would definitely recommend just letting it settle on your skin naturally rather than rubbing your wrists together Um, and then when it comes to spraying your neck we don't recommend spraying fragrance close to your nose um, because that will speed up what we call olfactory fatigue Um, so it means that you actually can't smell your own fragrance as you're wearing it throughout the day the people around you can but you don't get to enjoy it yourself it's funny because like a lot of these questions that we got today are actually from our social media and customer care so these are like our frequently asked questions from our customers and one of the questions was actually about about why can't I smell my own perfume after initial spray? Do you know what? I, I really struggle with that myself. So I, there I am completely applying it in all the wrong ways and I had all this knowledge there. A lot of people also spray their fragrance on their décolletage as well. And so, again, that's so close to the nose that um, you're not able to smell your fragrance throughout the day more quickly. So wrists, crooks of elbows, backs of knees, your tummy, your hair, those are all the best places to apply your perfume. And if you spray your perfume in the morning and in all those places does that mean that you're saying that we don't have to reapply during the day or do you say do you think that you actually do because you know I've got like some perfumes on my desk and I kind of 
put it in all the wrong places quite clearly and then end up <laughs> spraying more onto me and probably everyone else around me is being drowned out by these multi-layers of perfume. Uh, you do need to be um, aware of that. It does depend on the fragrance, Kate. So for example, if you do have a more lightweight, fresh fragrance, like a citrus-based fragrance, for example, or a floral-based fragrance, the molecules are quite light and airy, so they do evaporate more quickly. So a lighter fragrance, you might need to apply a couple of times throughout the day if you really want it to last from morning until night. Whereas if you're wearing a fragrance that's more woody or amber-based, those heavier scents, uh, those ones last longer on the skin because they have a heavier molecule. So um, think about what kind of scents you have in your collection and you'll really be able to determine the longevity. Um, also the concentration of the fragrance as well. So if you're wearing an eau de cologne or an eau de toilette, they have a lower concentration of perfume oils that don't tend to last for as long on the skin, whereas an eau de parfum or an X-ray have a high concentration of perfume oils, so they'll have um, a more powerful longevity. Ah, got it. Zara, where do you spray your perfume? Gosh, well, just listening to Laura, I think I sprayed all the wrong areas. Yeah, me too. Like this is a, this is revolutionary. I did. I when I started America, I did learn you don't bang your wrists together. Yeah. I did that once, and I was like, "What are you doing? Where where's the best place to store our fragrances?" I feel like I probably will get this wrong as well. When it comes to storing your fragrance, heat and light are the enemies of perfumes. So you want to keep your perfumes in a cool, dark place wherever possible. Uh, perfumes can look really beautiful on a windowsill, but they will degrade more quickly if they're exposed to uh, direct sunlight. Uh, so the fridge is actually a really good place to store perfumes. So if you step into a Mecca store and you notice that we have some fridges in some of our fragrance spaces, that's because that's the best place to keep fragrances very fresh and smelling um, as beautiful as they can be before they go into your shopping bags. Is that where you store your fragrance, Laura? My fridge is too overfull, unfortunately, but I do have a set of drawers that I keep underneath my desk. Um, so yeah, very cool, very dark place to store them all. And what is your favourite perfume? It's from the Lalabo brand uh, and it's called Jasmine 17. It's a little known fragrance um, and it is described as the scent of summer rain. Um, but I met someone from the Lalabo brand when they travelled here from London and they described it as the scent of a vanilla cake with lemon zest on top baking in the oven and you open the oven door and you get a waft of the cake and um, that's exactly what it smells like for me so with the Lalabo scents they name their scents after the main note in the fragrance and then the number of notes in the fragrance um, but they're also designed to shock so when you think of a jasmine scent you think of a creamy white flower kind of scent but it's actually a very fresh scent with vanilla underneath so that's the scent that makes me feel most like me. Sounds delicious. <laughs> how do, and like how do you find your own you know signature scent how do you know what you'd like and you know exploring fragrance families and you know, if you like rose what does that mean I have a few tips number one is to you know get out there and start smelling fragrances scent is so personal so a scent that one person absolutely loves could be intolerable to somebody else so it's not a matter of you know, looking at the best sellers. It's really a matter of exploring yourself. Uh, we form scent memories from a very young age. So often what 
smells beautiful to us is something that's quite nostalgic. Maybe it's our grandparents' garden or, you know, for me, it's the scent of my mum cooking in the kitchen when I was a child or um, it could be, um, you know, a beautiful place that you've been, the scent of Paris or the scent of uh, New York or something like that. Also, we know that scientifically we don't really know why, um, but generally we're always drawn to similar scents. So um, I might love floral scents um, and then someone else might always be drawn to more woody scents or someone else really prefers green, fresh kind of scents. So if you inventory the fragrances that you've loved in the past, generally they'll fall into three or four different fragrance families. And so you know that when you're shopping for fragrance, you can kind of gravitate towards those families. Um, and then my other tip is always, always try fragrance on your skin. So um, the modern way of shopping fragrance is to spray it on paper blotters and that's kind of a good way to figure out what interests you or where your heart is leading you but you really need to wear the fragrance on your skin to know if the fragrance loves you back um, and if you can live in the fragrance. When we talk about this um, olfactory fatigue so if I go into a Mecca store and I spray some perfume on my skin and then all I can smell is that perfume so how do I then kind of clear the palette and all the set you know how can I then try another perfume and not kind of get overwhelmed by all these different scents is there a trick or a tip yes absolutely so firstly I would say start with the paper blotters so spray the fragrances on the paper blotters and then choose your two favorites and only spray those two on your skin and spray them quite far apart from each other so if you're fragrance free on that day spray one on one wrist one on the other and then you can let it settle on your skin and smell each of them and see which one you prefer. Um, if you have been overwhelmed with a lot of scents, um, often we look at coffee beans and use those to reset the senses, but a lot of fragrance experts say that they're just another scent um, and add to olfactory fatigue. So what you should actually do is to smell your own skin. And that's what will reset your senses most effectively. So find a perfume-free section of your skin and sniff that. Um, and then your senses will open up and you'll be able to smell even more perfumes. That's a great tip. Yeah. love that. And is it true that a scent can smell different on other people? So like if I wear a scent versus when Kate wears a scent or when you wear a scent, I might love it on Kate but hate it on myself. Or is it like my own nose doing something different? Yes. Oh, it's not so much your nose, it's actually your skin. So all of us have different pH levels in our skin. So the acidity of our skin is different, which means that fragrance wears differently. Um, heat, of course, can affect skin. So fragrance smells different on men to women, for example. Um, summertime to wintertime, it will smell different. Um, the environment we're in will maybe accelerate the wear of the scent. And um, the other thing is diet as well. Actually, if you have a high a diet, you know, you eat a lot of spices in your diet, that will affect the scent. We were talking earlier actually with Zara about um, how she wears portrait of a lady in winter and I was like why do you have a different one for winter but that makes total sense. You've kind of just summed up exactly why we have different fragrances for different times of yeah, year as to well. me portrait of a lady feels like heavier and wintry and like not the kind sort of thing musky. I want to reach for in the heat of summer in yeah. Sydney. Which are your favourite um, yeah. new brands Dora as well? Oh new brands oh um we have launched a brand last year called Wilhelm Parfumery um it's by an incredible designer called Jan Wilhelm uh, he's Swedish and he's based in New York and he's created a collection of scents inspired by 
his life experiences. So he has one inspired by the city of Berlin. Uh, he lived in Harlem for many years, so a series of scents inspired by Harlem. Um, his childhood summers in Sweden, a trip to South Africa, uh, and they're just so evocative. And the bottles are absolutely beautiful as well. He's made them all this gorgeous colour of yellow, like a saffron yellow, to represent the joy of perfumery. So I absolutely love that collection. And then we also have another collection that we launched last year called A Another. Um, and that's a collection of clean fragrances that are made by some of the top perfumers in the world with complete creative license. So no brief, no price constraints, no nothing. They could just create something purely from their heart and they've created a beautiful curated collection. And what would you say is Mecca's um, kind of best selling fragrance or most iconic perfume? Well, it does change from season to season, from year to year to month to month, but at the moment it is the Maison Francis Cochon Baccarat Rouge 540. Uh, that's a really special scent. It's a collaboration between the Crystal Glass House Baccarat and the one of the most prolific and celebrated perfumers in the world, Francis Cochon, and he really wanted to create a fragrance that represented the luminosity and the warmth of the Baccarat crystal. So uh, it's jasmine, saffron, amber and uh, cedar wood, and it's just the most beautiful, luminous, woody, transparent scent that smells incredible on pretty much everybody who wears it. And we have the perfume, but we also have the, the shower gel as well and, and the candle. I mean, I, I'm quite tempted by the whole suite, actually. The candle's pretty amazing. Is it? The candle's incredible. Every time I burn it, um, people comment on it. Even when it's not burning, you can still smell it in the room. So I highly recommend the candle. They do a beautiful body oil as well and a hair mist. So, yeah, you can really have a, a whole suite of Baccarat Rouge 540. And is very popular as well at Mecca, isn't it? Yeah, so Le Labo Santal 33, absolutely another iconic scent for us. Um, and that one is a sandalwood scent. This sandalwood's actually sourced from a sustainable sandalwood farm in Western Australia near me and it's worn by all genders as well so very inclusive fragrance one that you can share with your partner as well. And what would you recommend to buy as a gift from the fragrance world? So buying fragrance as a gift can be a little risky as I mentioned before it's very personal um, so often I'll recommend buying a beautiful candle or a room spray or a home diffuser if you want to play it safe um, but if you really do want to buy somebody a beautiful fragrance then we do have some scents that kind of incorporate notes from all different fragrance families and therefore tend to be more universal favorites. Um, Baccarat Rouge 540 and Santel 33 are two examples and um, we also have uh, by Rado do a beautiful scent called Mojave Ghost uh, which makes a beautiful gift has a little bit of flora a little bit of wood a little bit of musk um, and Diptyque do the Philosokos scent as well which is a beautiful scent going into warmer months so it's a fig a fig scent and it tends to just create a sense of joy for whoever is wearing it. I love fig scents and I loved what you said earlier on about how fragrances are about like emotion and memories and moments. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So sense, scent is the sense that is most closely linked to our memory. And that's because when we smell something, our scent receptors send 
those receptors directly to our brain. So unlike sound, unlike sight, which gets interpreted in different areas, um, it's sent directly to the area of the brain that processes emotion and memory. And we start forming scent memories from when we're tiny babies. Um, and so often when we smell something, it can trigger what we call an involuntary memory. So you almost skip the memory and you just get the feeling that that scent had evoked for you. Yeah, it's amazing. And when I was um, getting married a thousand years ago, somebody um, said to me, one of the things I'd recommend doing is buying a totally new scent for your wedding day, only using it for your wedding day, so that every time you then smell it, years later, it will remind you of that day. And does that work? Yeah, I did it. And it actually worked amazingly well. I mean, I kind of wanted to keep wearing the perfume, but I stuck to the rules. Well, someone told me to actually wear the perfume you always wear, so that... You always think about your wedding day. Oh, well, you can so, do it yeah. different ways. You, you're not married yet, though, are you, Zara? No, I am. Oh, you are married. Yeah. There you go. I didn't know that. <laughs> Finding out things. <laughs> well, my recommendation for brides is to buy the fragrance at least as soon as they get engaged or at least a year before the wedding so they can wear the fragrance in the planning stages as well. So whenever you smell the scent, you don't just get the sense of the day, but also all of the excitement and anticipation leading up to it. Yeah, that's nice. That's kind of like a good in-between then. And then you could really like test the fragrance on you. What are some naturally inclined perfume options at Mecca? Can you like tell us a bit more about clean perfume or synthetic notes and what that means exactly? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a big, a big topic. So in the fragrance spot, it's actually extremely rare to find an entirely natural fragrance for a few reasons. But what actually at Mecca, we do have a natural fragrance brand, which is called Saint Bon. So uh, that is 100 B-O-N, if you see it on our website or on the shelves. Uh, and that's a French brand um, that uses wheat or beetroot alcohol and then all natural essential oils to create their scents. Uh, and it's all uh, refillable, reusable, recyclable. Uh, it's pretty incredible. Um, and then we have a whole host of beautiful, clean brands as well. Um, uh, so sustainable brands that are really devoted to ethical sourcing of ingredients, um, gentle, non-toxic ingredients. But they don't use entirely natural notes. And the reason for that is that synthetics in perfumery are really the cornerstone of what led perfumery to become an art. So in the 1800s is when scientists discovered synthetic notes. And prior to that, perfumers are really constrained to creating fragrances that recreated nature as it is. So recreating the scent of a flower or of a plant. Um, and then when they introduced synthetic notes into the equation, they could actually create abstract pieces of art that evoked emotion. And so most of the great perfumers in the world will not create an entirely natural fragrance because it takes away so many of their tools. It's like making a beautiful painting with only the colour blue. And also synthetic notes can sometimes be more sustainable and more ethical than natural notes. So for example, you know, there are sustainable sandalwood options in Australia for example um, but back in the day they would cut down sandalwood trees in India to make sandalwood perfumes which smelled beautiful but of course pillaged the forests of India whereas you can make a beautiful sandalwood note in a laboratory that smells extremely similar um, and has no effect on the environment. Um, also synthetic notes have given us the ability to um, create vegan ingredients in fragrances as well so musk used to be derived from the musk deer it no longer is it's all musk you'll find in fragrance is vegan synthetic musk um, so much more much more ethical i'm fascinated by your level of knowledge about this 
Is it like when you're a sommelier and you're trained into the sense of wine and the history of it? Did you have to go through that kind of level of training to have such an a rounded um, knowledge base and and my other question as well is is have you gone or gone on to sort of um, learn the art of perfume making and fragrance making so for me um my interest in fragrance really started with storytelling uh, i love stories i love the romance of perfumery so i actually read a book it's by a man called chandler burr and his job was the he was the perfume critic for the New York Times which is a role I didn't even know existed but probably my dream job and uh, he wrote a book about the creation of two very different perfumes and reading that book it's called The Perfect Scent is what made me feel just completely fascinated with the world of perfumery and from there I continued to research and learn about all of the brands the perfumes the creation stories inspirations behind scents um so no I don't know about the art of making perfumes um only a handful of people in the world do it's a very exclusive trade um that you can only learn at a few perfume schools around the world um and perfumers you know are very sought after they're scientists they're also artists um and what they do is incredibly technical so I'll never I'll never be a perfumer um um, and you know I'm not science-minded I'm very much a a storyteller and so that's the angle that I come at, at perfumery with and how I got into the education space and when you learn about the stories behind a perfume or the inspiration behind it you can really appreciate the artistry of a perfume so much more you know you can smell a fragrance and think oh yeah that's pretty but when you know that it's designed to smell like the sun shining through a cloud and you smell it again and you realize that it actually did capture that scent somehow magically um it gives you so much more appreciation for the craftsmanship behind it like that brand replica where a lot of their scents are actually like named after moments and memories and it's so clear like lazy sunday yeah I love that. And if you could just um, if you could just kind of wrap up with your five perfumes that you think everybody should have in their fragrance wardrobe, what would those be? Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. Um, five fragrances everyone should have in their fragrance wardrobe. OK, so number one, I would say um, Ellis Brooklyn Myth. So that is a beautiful musky jasmine scent um, can be worn by all genders and you can actually layer it with other perfumes as well. So um, it helps to enhance the wear of other perfumes and give it more depth. Another fragrance I would say everybody should have in their fragrance wardrobe. There is a fragrance by Diptyque called L'Ombre Don Lo. Um, and that one actually inspired our best-selling candle, which is Bay from Diptyque. And it's inspired by an English riverside garden. So the scent of crushed black currants and fresh rose petals and the fresh cut green stem of a rose. So something that smells really fresh on everybody, but more importantly, gives a sense an uplifting feeling whenever you wear it so if I'm ever feeling a little bit tired or worn out I'll pop that on and it makes me feel instantly refreshed um number three I would say um Blue by Rito Gypsy Water that is a real uh, classic it's the scent of sleeping under the stars by a campfire uh, really beautiful woody scent with pine needles at the heart and uh, bergamot on the top so a little bit of everything another beautiful scent to gift people as well it tends to be a universal favorite um 
Maison Francis Cochin Baccarat Rouge 540, of course, the ultimate glamour scent. If you're going to, on a, you know, a special occasion, you have a beautiful dress to wear or a beautiful suit and you, you want to feel extremely elegant, then, um, then that would be one of my, one of my top picks. And then uh, Wilhelm Parfumery, which I mentioned before, Morning Chess. Um, that's the classic green scent by Jan Wilhelm and a top perfumer called Jerome Epinette uh, and it's the scent of playing chess outside during a Swedish summer so uh, very uplifting very fresh and smells beautiful on everybody on everybody's skin that was brilliant thank you so much for joining us on Mecca Talks we've really enjoyed having you and we hope to have you back again it's my pleasure thank you so much Annalise Gregory, an incredible chef who has worked all over the world from her hometown in Auckland to London and France, Sydney. And now she is in Tasmania, where she lives on a farm foraging for the best local ingredients from the land and sea, which is actually much harder than you'd imagine. And I mean, Kate, you know I'm a massive foodie, right? I do. I feel like, do I need to say it again? No, but I, I love your foodiness. <laughs> your posts on social are amazing, Zara. But I feel like wine bars are one of my hobbies. Um <laughs> She cooked at this amazing wine bar in Sydney and I love her food. I still think about her food today. So she's got an amazing ability then to pair not only the wine with the food, but also the ambiance, which actually means that she's the perfect person for us to talk to today, Zara, about scents and actually really creating those moments and memories via scents as well. Exactly. And she's on the line now. Hi, Annalise. Hi there. So in your own words, um, tell us a bit about yourself. And where are you at the moment? I think you're in Tasmania, right? Uh, yeah, I'm in my farmhouse in Tasmania. It's really cold. Um, other than that, it's quite nice to be here. I'm living on like a two-acre plot in the Huon Valley, which is in southern Tasmania, and I'm raising I don't know goats, bees, chickens, geese, all kinds of things at the moment, and just doing lots of cooking. Oh, wow. So it's like a, like a farm, proper farm then. And do you do this all on your own? Yeah, I do. Um, it's a mini farm. Micro farm, maybe. And you've had such an interesting life because you were, you're from New Zealand, you were born in New Zealand, you travelled in Europe and you worked in France and London, all these amazing restaurants, ended up in Australia and now you're in Tasmania. I've kind of crunched your life into like, you know, one little baby sentence, but how did, how did all of that happen? Uh, I suppose I just, um, I always had a really... I don't know, strong sense for travel and just, um, I don't know, for, for getting out and about and just a really big curiosity about the world. So yeah, I kind of left New Zealand when I was 18 and then, uh, and then just traveled around everywhere. And it's very odd that now I've wound up somewhere that's quite like New Zealand. And how did you, um, how do you get into cooking and being a chef? I mean, that's, that's kind of everyone's dream to do it, but not many people are super successful in getting there because it's, it's such a skill. Did you train in it? Tell us a little bit about getting into that side of the business. So I suppose I was one of those kids that always cooked, but it was mainly baking uh, just because, you know, I cooked what I wanted to eat. And then at that stage, you know, when you're at high school and you go and do your like career counseling days and they send you to do a couple of different things. Um, the places that they sent me to were a restaurant and um, then a fashion design academy. And 
Um, everyone gave me that advice of like, you know, do something you love and then you'll never work a day in your life, which is great. It's also, it's also not true. (laughs) (laughs) It's not true at all. Um, because then as soon as you start doing something as your job, I mean, you still love it, but it's like, suddenly it's also like the way that you create an income and like, it definitely changes. Um, so yeah, I left school and went to do two years of training, um, in Auckland and then traveled around New Zealand a bit and then just hopped on a flight to London. And I've been cooking around the world ever since. That's such a important thing to sort of talk about as well as that chefs are some of the hardest working career people in the world. The hours you do are off the charts. And especially when you're working in London, you're working at some of the big restaurants and working for some of the, you know, chefs that have got sort of, um, they're renowned for working their teams pretty hard. Tell us a little bit about your experience there. Oh yeah, so I would often be working kind of like basement kitchens, um, get up, we would start at like, I don't know, maybe eight o'clock in the morning and then work till midnight. So it was that classic kind of 16 hour day thing. You might get a split shift in the afternoon and, um, you know, go sit in Hyde Park or something. Um, but, you know, I was young and I had the energy for it. I was 18. And so I, I reveled in it. And then I would, you know, go out clubbing all night. So. <laughs> what, two hours sleep later, you're back making souffles. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> that was life then (laughs) and what really what drew you to food like do you have a memory of you know you talked about baking a lot as a child but it's from family was it from just yeah what drew you to cooking um I think I like the feeling of it I like doing things with my hands like when I was young I also used to sew a lot and so I think it's um that feeling of making something and afterwards the feeling of satisfaction of being able to look at something that you've made and I get the same sort of satisfaction out of uh I suppose, like writing or drawing or, um, yeah, or even sewing. So from from the times in London and then now you're living in rural Tasmania on a 110-year-old farmhouse and you are you have animals, you've got all sorts of things going on and you, you spend a lot of your time foraging and diving and hunting and cooking on beaches and all over the country as well. Um, how did that come about? Because that's quite a significant change from working in some of London's finest restaurants, be it in a basement or not. I think um, there was a stage where I worked in a lot of countryside restaurants uh, in rural France and rural Spain. And like the lifestyle that I had there, where instead of, you know, going to wine bars in Sydney and stuff like I used to do, it would be like on the weekends, you know, I would like climb a mountain and forage for elderflower and then, you know, make gin and tonics with wild elderflower and sit by streams and um, do things like that. And I just kind of came to really love that lifestyle. And then I wanted to recreate that uh, somewhere in Australia for myself where, you know, I could just go and buy a bottle of wine and like a local cheese and just go sit by a river or something in the weekend. And so life finds me in Tasmania. You've worked as well with Gordon Ramsay, who's one of the biggest, fieriest chefs in the world. How was that experience? And tell us a little bit about that. He was actually a really nice guy. Uh, I feel like these days, maybe the, you know, fiery persona is kept for certain TV shows and things like that. Um, He was really nice. He was really interested in like my life and like, um, you know, where I was cooking and what I was doing. Um, He kept pulling me off screen to like do shots of whiskey with him, um, like behind the van. (laughs) He's really good in the kitchen, like actually really good. Like I thought I might be able to beat him. But it was really hard. And I think people forget about that. You know, they see his online persona. But he is, at the end of the day, like an amazing chef. Um, And I think, you know, what you're doing now in Tasmania, I think sort of goes too much. It goes to say that there's so much more about food than just the taste. It's the experience being like, you know, you're cooking on a beach and diving and foraging and finding the food. And when did you realize that 
it was more just about like food that you eat that tastes good. It's like a whole sensory kind of experience. I think it probably took me a while, but like even when I was younger, um, you know, when people ask you to rate like your top five meals, I realized that, you know, my top five meals were not purely based around just the food or sitting in a restaurant that often they were also about like the full experience and where I was and who I was with. Um, and then when I moved to Tasmania, I realized that my top five meals down here, um, probably none of them would really be restaurant based, that they would all be just like a time that I went for a dive with a friend. And the first time that I dived for sea urchin and got some, and we sat on the beach, like in our wetsuits, eating it off a dive knife. Um, (laughs) You know, that there were all moments, moments like that. Um, so that it was about so much more than just, uh, I don't know, food on a plate in a restaurant, I suppose. And then I became really interested in that. And your, and your cookbook, I think, sums all of that up, right? Where the wild things are. What can we find in the cookbook? Um, basically, all of the things that, just like I said, that I, um, that I cook for friends and family. Um, there's a few like restaurant dishes from Franklin in there, but mainly it's stuff that that I would cook for people um, from ingredients that I forage or I dive for or I fish for or that are local to here. Um, all the things I really love cooking in Tasmania. And what, do you, what would you say your favourite dish to make is? is that, oh, or actually the dish you like to eat. I think there's two different things there. Probably what you like to make and what you like to eat. Oh, um, I cook a lot of abalone, but that's also because I dive for a lot of abalone. Um what else do I really love to make and eat? Um, I know. I mean, today I'm making truffle creme caramels. Oh my god, that truffle sounds, creme caramel sounds so good. I, I would just Zara's love. a total foodie, so this is really exciting her. <laughs> Can't you imagine truffle creme caramel? That sounds amazing. Yeah, and I think um, you know, when we were chatting a bit before this, Annalise talking about scents, and you know, it's clear that you're so passionate about scents, and scents are so much like you were saying to me, like building your recipe. So talk to you about you know, how you built a recipe like truffle creme caramel and how, what is your and who, who gets to eat that? Is it just yourself? <laughs> uh, no, so on, on Sunday, I'm cooking on a private island called Satellite Island, which is off Bruni, which is a pretty good gig. It's very beautiful there. Um, and yeah, that's just one of the new recipes that I kind of came up with last year. Um, I was cooking a lot with truffles over lockdown and trying to, you know, think of different desserts and different ways to use them. Um, I guess it's like I normally start with one ingredient when I'm cooking and then I think of um, like things to match with that. So I'll think of like two or three other things that I think work well with it and then work into like, you know, what what textures they're going to be like, you know, so it'll be truffle and caramel. But like, you know, will it be an ice cream? Will it be, you know, a panna cotta? Will it be a creme caramel? Like which which form will it take? And these truffles, have you foraged for those truffles? Uh, these ones I actually did because I just brought back them back from Western Australia with me. Um, but no, normally in Taz, um, I get them from truffle farmers. And then, I mean, when you're creating your recipes, it's just like, do you just trial and error? Do you ever have any failures or does everything work as you've sort of planned and plotted in your head? Yeah. Cause it's a sort of emotional thing, isn't it? When you come, yeah. you probably have a sense of what is going to work and what isn't, I imagine. I mean, I'm not the best chef, so I can't really talk. You do have a sense of what's going to work and what's not. Occasionally, I still have failures. Uh, sometimes they're just through my own laziness. Like last night, I was um, I have an insomnia baking project when I can't sleep. I just bake. And uh, I'm, I made um, one of Danielle Marie Alvarez's cakes and um, didn't have any milk. And I was like, oh, what else have I got? And so I was looking through the cupboards and I was like, coconut milk. I was like, maybe. And I was like, maybe it will be different than like actual dairy. Uh, but it works. But sometimes I do stuff like that just out of necessity. And it talked to you about how you see senses like synonymous or, you know, similar to recipes. You were telling me that you love wearing black saffron from Byredo. 
what drew you to that and how is that how is that like a recipe in your head? I think I like scents that have uh, some kind of like something that could be a food component, but is also um, maybe fragrant in them. <laughs> the ones with um, spices and herbs and things. So like this morning, I know my body washes like rose, black pepper and cardamom, which are all things that you could eat. And I was like, oh, actually, this body wash could be a dish, could be a dessert. <laughs> I was like, those things could definitely work together. I was like, maybe I should try that in rose season. Yeah, have you ever thought of, have you ever been inspired from a scent to create a dish? I haven't yet been inspired to create dishes based on scents, but it's definitely something that's gone through my mind about trying before. Uh, there was a chef in Spain, Jordi Rocca, a pastry chef who made a whole series of desserts based on like known perfumes oh. at one stage and would have like, you could smell the perfume and then the dessert would be all of the like components of the perfume essentially. Is there one ingredient as well that you would, because I went to this years and years ago, I went to this um, restaurant in San Francisco called the Garlic Rose and absolutely every single dish had garlic in it, even the ice cream, even the desserts. And it was just like, you know, unless you like, if you didn't like garlic, it was probably not the place for you. Is there one ingredient that you would use in absolutely every, every dish? Ooh, difficult. Um, at the moment, I'm really taken with um, seaweed and miso. Mm -hmm. And so I put those into a lot of things. So I make a wakame seaweed jam that goes into a lot of stuff. Um, that's probably my closest thing, I think, to that. And because Annalise, you've got a really rich, like, heritage you know your dad's Welsh your mother's Dutch Chinese I feel like you know were you you know you talk about loving like cardamom and black saffron in your sense do you kind of see that sort of influence in your heritage come out in your cooking and your sense yeah definitely um especially after I think I used to struggle um using a lot of spice and food I just didn't really know how to Not really yeah but wow. I, but I wanted to and um at one stage I what sort of spices were you struggling with um all of the normal ones, like lots of cardamom, saffron, mm. all of those things. Um, mm. I think also like a lot of them weren't grown in New Zealand. And so it's very different when you get stuff that's, you know, just like packaged and and old and maybe stale to... Um, I went and lived in Morocco for a while and was cooking there um, in Medina and Fez in the north. And I think it completely changed the way that like that I use spice and food. And I feel like I use a lot more now after that experience than I did before gives you confidence I'm sure to, to sort of learn in those working in that way in Morocco because it's so the the kind of I love the food in Morocco and the, all of the tagines and all of that and it you walk into a any room and the smell of the food and the smell it just all feels so rich exactly and um they grind spices with their coffee there before they put it through the espresso machine um I started using cumin and desserts uh really just I don't know, kind of embraced it. Um, so in terms of your, the sense, like a great recipe with layers, I think it's such an interesting way of, of um, defining your style and your cooking style. And you've obviously lived and worked in multiple places which have inspired you over the years. And as Zara was pointing out as well, your rich heritage and how all of those, um, you know, having uh, your father's Welsh and your mother's Dutch Chinese and you've lived in New Zealand, you've lived in London, you're now back in Tasmania, you've lived and worked in France. What would you say now is your style, if you could summarise it and kind of let us know a little bit about what you you should be known for and, and sort of respected for as a chef in terms of your cooking style? Oh, um, it's kind of... <laughs> I've never thought about it like this before, but recently now it's probably like fancy farmhouse. If that was a thing, 
Fancy farmhouse, <laughs> brilliant, so delicious. I would like eat fancy farmhouse right now. Um, because I'm trying to grow a lot of the produce and use things from close to home, and so because I'm cooking a lot from home, um, it's not as tech technical, I suppose, as it was when I was working in restaurants. Yeah. Um. So that's techniques kind of taken a backseat to just having really good ingredients and like using everything that's around mm. me. So like um. You know, I raise pigs and then um, my next door neighbor and I uh, process them into like salami and things. And so like I just always find that I have produce that's around at the moment that needs to be used. And like I said, I fish and dive and forage a lot. So it's all based on those things. It's hyper seasonal. But I've also um, come around to including a lot more kind of like Spanish and French and maybe Chinese influences, which I used to find difficult to do. And now that seems a bit more seamless. Yeah, I love how you're like molding all these different yeah. types of cuisines into the f- fancy yeah. farmhouse. I love that. Would you would you ever open your own restaurant? I mean, Tasmania, as we know, is becoming a bit of a gastro destination um, with all the vineyards there and the oysters. I mean, the food's incredible. So would you ever think about opening the fancy farmhouse there? Well, I was toying with the idea of opening a 10-seater restaurant at my very non-fancy farmhouse um, in one of my sheds. But uh, I've just been so busy recently that I haven't uh, really had a chance to work on it. I have had a very fancy stove installed and that's all that I've done. Can you talk to us about how you, you know, I think you were talking about what your cooking style is. How do you think that's reflected in how you like approach beauty or how you approach fragrances and scents? Like, is it much, is it very different or is it quite similar or are they influenced by each other in any way? Um, I think I've definitely grown towards like more kind of, I don't know, in a word, savoury fragrances, I suppose. Um, I stay away from things Mm. like that are too sweet but that's changed over time like in the beginning when I first um when I was a young chef and I first discovered like heavy vanilla based fragrances you know I was in love with them and then over time um I liked things that were like greener um, and had more kind of forest notes and then now I like things that kind of have like woody notes in them and like a little bit more like depth kind of like your life like more woody yeah yeah you were saying when you were younger you loved baking as well and then to be drawn to vanilla scents because I think like scents are so much a part of like you know, your memories, memories and what's happened in the past and things like that. Uh, but I love, um, you know, I was telling you before, I loved when you did, when you were at Barbara say in Sydney and you did that dish with the Chinese sausages and like mixing in different flavours. And it's so good to see that you're still doing that now and playing with in different ways. To be honest, that dish was probably one of my first attempts at, I hate the word fusion, but um, we need to find a new name for it. But you know, kind of a combining of things from my childhood and things I had learned to make in Europe. And it's a really, I don't know, it's a really enjoyable way to cook because I'm combining things that I've always known and that I love with um, like new techniques and things that I've discovered, like, you know, like making gnocchi, making pasta, things that I've picked up in my professional career. Um, And so it's really comforting to me. I'd really like to make more dishes in that zone and I really enjoy it. Um, And you've got a a new TV show coming out, A Girl's Guide to Hunting, Fishing and Wild Cooking. What's going to happen in this TV show? Will we see you in action? Uh, Yeah, I'm going to hunt and fish and cook. (laughs) Like the name says, there's also quite a lot of um, really bad renovation at my farmhouse, um, goats escaping, things like that. You're not building as well, are you? Uh, struggling, struggling with it. <laughs> on your own. I mean, you've got, have you, 
Are you doing this on your own? I am doing this on my own. And wow. yeah, it is a 110-year-old house, so it's, things are constantly falling apart. The life that you have, I think, you know, now, especially with what's happened in the past, yeah, so many people want to move out regionally, you know, live off the land, do this, and you're really living the dream of so many people. But also, you know, that sort of taking taking the opportunity and chances in life to do something different and actually to shape it for yourself, I think it's really inspiring. Oh, thank you. That's really nice. Yeah, I kind of... I, to be honest, I got the whiteboard out and um, when I was in Sydney one day and wasn't very happy and I was like, okay, you know, like, what do I like about life? What do I enjoy? All of these things. And then I was like, okay, I need to shape a life like based around, you know, being outdoors, getting to walk in the forest, getting to do all of this stuff, but still cooking and um, made, yeah, took like positive steps towards that kind of every day. And here we are. Had you ever sort of hunted or fished before this or did you just throw yourself into it one day uh very very little I kind of moved to Tasmania and just threw myself into it I was like I'm in Tasmania I'm going to embrace everything at least you grew up in Auckland and with your going to your stepfather's dairy farm would 10 year old Annalise ever imagine that she would be in this situation now uh 10 year old Annalise probably would have imagined that but 20 year old Annalise never ever ever would have imagined that yeah true when you were living the life in London, city girl. Very much so. Oh, well, thank you so much, Annalise. I feel like we've asked you so many questions and we can't wait to watch your new TV show and eventually yeah. when you open your fancy farmhouse. We'll be there. We're going to be your first customers. Excellent. I'll get the truffle cream caramels ready. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mecca Talks. If you liked what you heard, follow us on your favourite podcast app, and you'll be notified as soon as our next episode becomes available. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this episode with your friends. To stay up to date on what's going on in the Mechaverse, find us on Instagram at at Mechabeauty, or join the conversation in our Mecha Chit Chat Facebook group. You've been listening to Mecha Talks. Thank you for joining us. And I'm on the roll.